just do that, but like with 500% the energy. Welcome back, everybody, to another <laughs> special edition. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to another special edition of the Buzzword Podcast. Today, we are talking about psychiatry, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Bo. What are you drinking today, Bo? What is up, everybody? Hands to the roof. It is Saturday, uh, two days before I start my second ICU ship, so I am making the most of it and enjoying my time here with Bobby. So today I have my second Longship Brewery brew. They were very nice and gave us uh, a four pack, so we got quite a few to try. This one is the Wet Hop Session IPA. And if you look at their website, uh, they say the Wet Hop Session is a light and crisp bright citrus with pine aromas. So I'm super excited about it. They've been very generous and we'll see how it goes. Bobby, what are you drinking? Sounds lit. I am drinking a Locals Light by Shorts Brew. Shorts Brew actually sent this to us as well. It's an American lager. It looks pretty good. We'll have to see. Um, if you guys like the podcast and want to support the podcast, you know, check out these breweries because supporting them indirectly supports us. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Shall we crack them? And if you if you have any friends that are, uh, own or uh, manage breweries and you want us to try their brews, send them our way. We're happy to talk to them. Let's do it. Skrr. The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both try oh. to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them straight up. Why is the rum always gone? It's sort of an oaky afterbirth. Going to detain a for enjoying his whiskey. What was that? Now that's high yield. Cheers. <sighs> Buzzwords. So, Bobby, you got a patient. They come in, they're down on the street. EMS brings them in. There's a friend there says, hey, my buddy, he's a long psych history. I'm not too familiar with it. The physician's like, okay, okay, that's fine. But he's down, so let's figure out why. Uh, we think he fell, so let's get a head uh, CT to rule out trauma. And it does. There's no trauma. But it does show some mild enlargement of the cerebral ventricles. So just based off that CT finding, what is the most likely psychiatric diagnosis that this patient has? Schizophrenia. Very nice. That was very quick. So... Uh, schizophrenia, the most consistently replicated neuroimaging finding, is enlargement of the lateral cerebral ventricles. It's actually more common than uh, degeneration of the amygdala and hippocampus, which are other findings. So lateral cerebral ventricles, enlargement of those, is a pretty consistent sign with schizophrenia. Yeah, it's really interesting because those, those brain changes are also associated with like normal aging. So it's interesting that schizophrenia... I mean, obviously, there's something you know going on there neurobiologically, but also being able to actually see physical exam or imaging findings is is pretty interesting. Definitely. Cool. So, patient comes into your ED and he took an unknown quantity of his father's medications. He doesn't know what medications they are. He doesn't know how much he took. It was like a few handfuls, uh, and it happened just thirty minutes ago. What are you gonna do for him? So basically a broad uh, vignette where someone ingested something. So the answer is not going to be any, I don't think, medications. Since we don't know what it is. It's going to be some type of probably uh, suction, gastric lavage, maybe some charcoal. Is that what we're getting at? Yeah, exactly. So suction and gastric lavage for the purposes of the psych shelf is essentially never the right answer. You have to have a pretty good reason to pick that but you're on the right track. So activated charcoal, like you had mentioned, is something that you can give to patients who have overdosed if you're not sure what they've overdosed on. That gives them the best chance of 
it not you know getting absorbed into their system but it only works within the first couple hours because if it's if it's been more than three or four hours and that medication's already absorbed right it's interesting and, and I'll, I'll discuss that maybe a little later with one other vignette but it's interesting it's probably more specific than the board exam uh, requires but there are some medications because of how they're charged among other things that actually don't uh, really work uh, at least the charcoal won't work for them so mm -hmm. uh, but generally that is the right answer great point all right so that was actually uh, the easiest question I was going to give you so it only gets uh, harder from here okay great so if at any point you need to take a break among other things uh, let me know okay so I have a patient She's elderly. She's female. She comes in because her memory is just getting worse. She used to have great memory, but over the last couple of months, she starts forgetting things. She's becoming more inefficient. Um, she's a little bit more fatigued. Uh, she's waking up a little bit more at night. She just lost her interest in gardening recently. Her only medical history is high blood pressure. And the only recent change was she discontinued hormone replacement therapy. So, what are you concerned about with this patient who is fatigued, trouble sleeping, loss of interest, and memory issues? Well, based off of what you're telling me, I think it is probably due to her recent discontinuation of her hormone replacement therapy. So she's going through essentially a perimenopausal type syndrome again. Which could let's also say be let's say she discontinued depression. the hormone replacement therapy last year. Let's say it was last year. Okay. So, you know, in any elderly person who's having memory issues, you, the most obvious thing that people start thinking about is dementia. But there's a lot of conditions, both you know, medical and also psychiatric, that can mask or present themselves kind of as a similar dementia type picture. I mean, the memory loss, the early awakening, loss of interest in activities make me sound or makes me think of depression, probably. Right. So let's say before we before we diagnose her with depression, we need to rule some other reasons out that someone might have memory loss or symptoms of dementia. Any labs that you'd want to check on her? Yeah. So the kind of quote unquote reversible causes of dementia are... First things first would be thyroid, and then certain vitamins can also cause it. So I believe it's B12, B6, and then B1 are the three that you have to check from a vitamin standpoint. And then there are a few other causes of like reversible dementia that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. So let me ask you another question. That was all correct. I'm just going to go down this rabbit hole of dementia and uh, essentially pseudo-dementia as well. Mm -hmm. So she had a history of hypertension. What in the vignette would have had you lean towards more of a vascular etiology? If I was worried about a vascular dementia, I would think that there would be more of a stepwise decline from what you kind of told me. All these symptoms kind of happened all at once. Usually with vascular dementia, there'll be some signs of a stroke or a TIA or a sudden change in gradual loss of function as different regions of the brain get you know, slowly infarcted over time. Perfect. And let's say you got imaging for this uh, lady and you saw some hydrocephalus, uh, but her pressure was fine. What other symptoms would you 
want to seek out to confirm that diagnosis? Well, if you were worried about normal pressure hydrocephalus, the classic triad is, and I don't know that this is like appropriate to say anymore, but wacky, wobbly, and wet. So <laughs> the wackiness is like dementia symptoms. Wobbling is a, I believe it's a wide stepping kind of shuffling gait with gait instability. And I believe, I think it's like a, there's a word for it. That's like, a, I believe it's a magnetic gait where it's kind mm. of like their feet are stuck to the ground. And then wet, which is um, urinary incontinence due to stretching of the, um, I believe it's a corona radiata virus. Yep, exactly. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to have to drink because you have gotten everything correct. The last couple of points that I want to uh, describe, the last couple of points that I want to explain uh, for the listener is that this patient came in, obviously deteriorating memory. You have to consider all the etiologies, but you also need to consider what is quoted pseudo-dementia. And that's just a fancy word to say that the person is depressed and that's affecting their memory among other things. So there are a lot of hints here that this is pseudo-dementia, including her other symptoms. One big hint for these patients actually is that they're actually concerned about their memory loss. I don't know if you've ever met someone with Alzheimer's, but these patients with Alzheimer's, which is the number one etiology of dementia, these patients typically are not super concerned with their memory loss, or they at least downplay the degree of memory loss. I personally have a grandmother uh, who's battled Alzheimer's dementia, and she denied it until essentially the end, uh, she never really acknowledged that she had memory loss. And I feel like that's a quite common uh, thing with them. So in this case, the patient comes in distressed about her memory loss, that actually can point you towards more of a depression or pseudo dementia point. The last thing I want to say is that we always have to think about Parkinson's with dementia and with pseudo dementia. And the one thing that is sometimes a gotcha is that they'll give you a vignette with a patient that maybe starts slowing down that walks a little slower among other things. And they're trying to trick you and get you to say Parkinson's when really you should flush out the question, see if there's any other clues such as rigidity, shuffling gait among other things because people with dementia, because of the kind of psychomotor agitation, they can slow down on their own. And thus it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily see someone slow down and think immediately Parkinson's also think of pseudo dementia. But Bobby's right, otherwise you have to think about everything like thyroid, uh, electrolytes, B12, alcohol. Uh, if I told you about the C her head, you would want to know about CT scans, subdurals, among other things. Um, and then, of course, vascular dementia. Great job, Bobby. I will take a big drink for that. Nice. I'll drink too, just because I'm nice. Okay. So, you have a patient come in to your sleep study clinic and he mentions offhandedly he's just there for a sleep study his doctor didn't really say didn't give him a didn't give you a good consult so you're not actually sure why this guy's getting a sleep study but he tells you he has depression what sleep related changes are you going to see in this patient compared to a normal patient sure so people with depression the things that i think about uh, include multiple awakenings as well as early morning awakenings and I'm sure there's probably some more specific answers such as decreased REM sleep as well. But those are the three things that really come to mind immediately. Yep, exactly. So increased awakening, awakenings throughout the night and increased early morning awakenings. 
And then if I'm not mistaken, it's actually increased REM sleep with depression. Mm. And those changes are also seen in the elderly. The only difference being they have decreased REM. And that's, I believe, part of the theory as to why people with depression sometimes feel tired all the time or feel they need to sleep a lot. Because while REM sleep is important for your brain health, it isn't actually what's making you feel well rested. It's the other stages of sleep that, like the other, you know, N3, N4 that help contribute to, you know, restfulness. Right. So it's increased REM sleep density, but this is the key. Reduced REM sleep latency. I remember that now. Right. Well, that means that they go into REM sleep sooner. So they spend less time in the other stages of Right. Of Which sleep. is what you're saying. Yeah. Perfect. That's a great point. And that's actually such a helpful point. I know there's multiple cases uh, where the vignette stated that, and that was my key and my clue into what was going on. Nice. Especially those early morning ones, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Bobby, I have a 16-year-old female. She presents altered uh the mother is with her and says i don't know what happened i came home and i saw her laying on the bed uh with all of uh grandma's pill bottles uh next to her and they're empty i don't know what pill she took but i have a suspicion it was some of grandma's antidepressant medications you do a very basic intro to see what's going on and you see a little bit of widening on qrs which clues you in to the overdose. What is the initial treatment? The initial treatment for TCA overdose is to stabilize the heart with calcium carbonate, and then you alkalinize the urine with sodium bicarb. Fantastic, so it is a TCA overdose. How did you know that? So basically most of the psych medications widen the QRS complex, like serotonergic drugs especially do as well. But TCA overdose specifically, especially is known for really widening the QRS complex. And that's actually, I believe the main cause of death is it does something to the sodium channels in the heart. And so the patients will go into a unstable arrhythmia and pass away, which is why stabilizing the cardiac membrane is your, your first step. All right, great points all around, Bobby. So TCA overdose is something we're always concerned about. It is the classic vignette that you're going to get on your step two exam where a patient comes in and has some of grandma's older medications that are not as highly used nowadays. And TCA overdose is the one we have to really worry about because it can cause a lot of things. If you look at uh, the sketchy again, remember it's coma, convulsions, and cardiac toxicity. And especially for the cardiac toxicity, uh, we need to address it with the sodium bicarbonate. So that would be the correct answer, I think, on the exam. Not only does it help get rid of the drug, but it also kind of um, binds the sodium channels and prevents the drug uh, from working. I actually had a patient in the ICU uh, a month ago with this exact thing and basically had him on a sodium bicarbolus and then some drips as well. So very real thing that can happen in real life, but also very common on this step exam. Nice. I'll go into that. little aspiration i'll definitely drink to that a patient recently switched to a new psychiatrist who changed some of his meds around he 
comes into your emergency department after eating some pizza and his blood pressure is in the 240s systolic. What do you think is going on? <laughs> That's an interesting vignette. So new psychiatrist is on a new medication. Now blood pressure is super high. So immediately it gets me thinking of things that mess with your alpha, among other things. So I have to say this patient is on a medicate this patient is on this patient is on a medication such as clonidine and had some cheese or no is it the tyramine <laughs> is the patient on a mao inhibitor and had some cheese and now is in a crisis yes there mm. you go you got there so this is classic tyramine toxicity the MAOIs are non-selective, MAOA and MAOB. Normally, when you eat foods that are rich in tyramine, you think about wine, aged cheese, Parmesan, you know, on a pizza. Mm. The uh, monoamine oxidase in your stomach converts it into, I don't remember what it converts it into, but it's just a regular, you know, digestion process. MAOIs inhibit that process, and the tyramine can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and lead to severe hypertension because it acts as a stimulant essentially and so you get very very high blood pressures fantastic that's a great point one thing to keep in mind is these medications aren't used for first line therapy they tend to be second or third line for people who have resistant depression or anxiety because you know the side effect profile and the potential for toxicity from so many different foods is is not worth it unless there's really no other option Right, you gotta have your pizza. You didn't tell me what kind of pizza that was, so it was kind of an unfair question. Well, would it have made a difference? Yeah, like imagine if it was pineapple pizza. Uh, I would think more of like a bromelain like kind of manifestation. Yeah, of course. So, I have a patient uh, that came in altered. Uh, you know they have bipolar based off chart review, and. Um, they're altered. Their sodium is 152. What's the issue? Bipolar disorder, hypernatremia. I would be concerned that this patient is probably on lithium, which has given them diabetes insipidus, specifically nephrogenic. Wow, very well done. Everyone needs to drink for Bobby because... He continues to impress. For those of you at home, please join me in dabbing on the haters. Yeah, all the haters, all the all the fan mail that we get that's obviously not from fans that just tells people just constantly just berate Bobby and they just say, I'm smarter than you, I know more than you, your master's class is a joke, among other things. Um, these people need to understand that Bobby... Uh, Give it a rest, you guys. We're all friends here. Why you got to be like that? Yeah. So fantastic. Lithium toxicity can lead to a lot of things. We think about toxicity acutely in the setting of kind of an altered mental state. We can think about GI toxicity and abdominal pain. Uh, but then if someone has lithium overdose for too long, they can uh, lead to things like nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which actually can be permanent. So uh, you do want to, you know, 
potentially start the lithium. Some patients stopping the lithium might not be worth it. They might need it. Uh, so you actually, uh, it's recommended at least be up to date that at times you continue the lithium, you just add on uh, treatments such as like amiloride among other things. You can even try thiazides after amiloride if those don't work, but you need to do something uh, to help kind of keep the fluid status uh, more nominal as they say. Uh, something they also recommended is that you can actually add desmopressin because sometimes it's not 100% of the kidney that's uh, resistant, it's just uh, portions of it and actually just overloading uh, with desmopressin can uh, at times make up for that. But for the purposes of step two exam, remember that lithium toxicity uh, can lead to nephrogenic diabetes. Uh, other organs that it can affect include the thyroid. That's another big one. So you want to make sure uh, if you get a patient with a vignette, for example, uh, where they're now lethargic and maybe they're in a you know, myxedema coma uh, and they're on lithium, consider hypothyroid as the etiology with that as well. Anything else I might have missed, Bobby? No, I think you got it. You even got the amiloride, which is kind of, it's weird that you would use a diuretic for somebody who's peeing too much, but I think amiloride is specific for nephrogenic diabetes insipidus from lithium toxicity, whereas thiazides are used in uh, nephrogenic DI in general. Right. And the mechanism is complicated. I was reading through it today, and it's it's not worth it. I think to know the mechanism, I think it's just going to confuse people and, and make it a little uh, more difficult to remember. But if you're interested, the mechanism is interesting. It has less to do with it, like diuresis. It's more of like the electrolytes and how they move based off this medication. Uh, the last thing I'd, I'd ask you, Bobby, is let's say this patient comes in, you know they have a lithium overdose, and you hydrate them, hydrate them, hydrate them, which is initially first line to get them to pee out the lithium, but let's say they just cannot get it out, and you're worried, what would be the ultimate treatment? Dialysis? Fantastic. Yep, hemodialysis is the treatment for lithium overdose. Well done. Ba-ding, ba-boom. So, a patient comes in your emergency department and he took a bunch of his dad's benzos what are you going to give him so i'm thinking about a dog with a muzzle on it and flumazenil flumazenil flumepazole what is it i believe it's flumepazole maybe it is flumepazole flumepazole is the one that you get for alcohol uh oh you're right right right? yeah it is flumazenil they sound very similar and they both work on gaba receptor and flumazenil is the one that you want to give, but like it's not often given because people that come in like overdose, it's not often an acute thing, right? So if you give them flumazenil, it can actually lead them to go into a withdrawal state. Correct me yes. if I'm wrong. So that was going to be yeah. my follow-up question is what do you have to watch out for in those patients? And it is seizure. So you have to be careful to kind of titrate and walk the tightrope of benzo overdose versus withdrawal because ni- neither of those is particularly good. Yeah, I've never seen flumazenil given in practice, but it is an interesting theory. Indeed. All right, Bobby, how is your brew so far? My beer is good so far. It's pretty solid. It's nice. It's light. You know, it's something I'd like to drink, you know, out on the porch on a sunny afternoon. How's your beer, Bo? My brew is actually quite good as well. It's the Longship Brewery Wet Hop Session. It is quite wet. This one has a, um, a slightly bitter aftertaste that I think um, just doesn't suit well with my palate. But otherwise, it's, it's very easy to drink. goes down. You can definitely tell there's a hint of citrus to it. Nice. All right, guys. That is it for episode one of our psych series. 
Check out episode two. We'll have a couple more questions, vignettes. I got a rapid fire for Bobby, and we'll review the brews and give the ultimate scores. Until next time, see y'all soon. Alrighty, bye bye now. Bye bye now. <laughs> wow, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Where to start? Where to start? <laughs>